Hey y'all, welcome back to the Core Perform Corner. Here's a sneak preview of our most recent Core Perform Practitioner Group meeting. This is a free journal club that meets weekly for coaches and providers to stay up to date in the latest research. If you're interested in joining us, I'll attach a link in the show notes. And if you're not a provider, don't worry, I'll be sure to share clips like this moving forward. As always, this content is for educational purposes only and should not be taken as professional medical advice. Without further ado, here's this week's journal club. Hello and welcome back. Uh, today we have Dr. Jensen joining us and we'll be talking about really gut health and the immune system and the differences between the immune system throughout the digestive tract. So why don't we kind of start with that and maybe you could help us define what a healthy environment looks like um, for the GI, for our immune system, where do those bacteria mainly live? Why does that happen? Uh, and so on. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on the, on the show today. Within the gastrointestinal tract, we have billions and billions of microbes living there, um, and they are mutualistic microbes, most of them. So we really rely on them, and, and it's a symbiotic relationship. So we provide a warm and nice environment for the, the microbes and substrates that they can feast on. So that's different kind of nutrients. Uh, and they help us metabolize some of the nutrients that we can't do ourselves. And they also occupy the space because it's the, the gastrointestinal tract is the largest surface area exposed to the external environment. So if we don't have helpful microbes to inhabit that uh, habitat, then eventually it will be taken over by pathogens instead. So it's extremely important that we have those, but of course they need to be well-balanced and still kept at a distance. There is a gradient of the amount of microbes that we have throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Largely, uh, you can say by far the most lives in the colon. That's where we have the most dense population. And then in the small intestine, we also have some, uh, very few in the upper part of the small intestine and more and more as we go along the small intestine. Then we have differences in the mucus layer to keep them at check. Um, and it depends on where in the intestine that we're looking at, what kind of mucus we have and what the mucus is supposed to do there. The microbes that we have, in particularly in the colon, they can help us by digesting dietary fibers that we don't have the enzymes to digest ourselves. So we rely on microbial fermentation, which will liberate bioactive molecules that our cells depend on. But if that barrier is breached, and that's sort of the core of our research that we do in our lab, is to look at barrier function and how that is implicated in an array of different disease indications, both metabolically and, and GI, uh, so gastrointestinal tract related. And if, if the balance is not properly maintained, then we have increased exposure of the microbial content to the host immune cells. And th then the tolerance that we would under normal circumstances have will break which means that we will, to defend ourselves from invading microbes, we will elicit a host immune response. And that is very beneficial short-term if we have a barrier breach. But if that becomes chronic, that's when we have all the problems. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's that it's always that short-term stressor. And if we are able to recover, then it's a beneficial thing. It's when it becomes chronic that we're not able to recover, that it becomes detrimental to our health. So part of the paper, when I was reading it, I thought that was that really helped to summarize everything was the part where you said the rapid transit time of luminal contents, meaning how quickly food passes through our digestive mm -hmm. system and a low pH value 
as well as high concentrations of bile acids, digestive enzymes, post-defense peptides, which we can define a little bit deeper in a second, um, and immunoglobulin A, um, make the du duodenum, jejunum, and proximal ileum, which for those of you who don't know is the small intestine, unfavorable environments for bacterial growth. So we're not supposed to grow bacteria in our small intestine. <laughs> and so when we do, and we start to have, maybe we have less concentrations of bile acids, we have um, higher amounts of pH, which would mean a less acidic environment. Um, maybe we have less digestive enzymes. Maybe our immune system is taking a hit right now. Um, all of these things can predispose us for an environment in our small intestine for bacterial overgrowth. Could you talk for a second about what a host defense peptide is? Yeah, absolutely. And so host defense peptides, that's previously they were called antimicrobial peptides. So that is basically the most ancient part of the innate immune system that we have. And it's extremely conserved across all um, living organisms. They all express these, uh, what is previously called antimicrobial peptides, and they were originally believed to keep microbes at check. So like an endogenous antibiotic. The field over the last decades or so has now turned more and more into calling them the new term, which is host defense peptides, because we have realized that they have so many different functions addition, in addition to the, um, to the antimicrobial properties. So they interact directly with the host immune system and can manipulate the host uh, immune response. Uh, in different ways, both in terms of chemotaxis potential, so recruiting immune cells, but also in terms of whether respond or not to respond to a pathogen. And one of the other things that is super important for your mucosal lining and mucosal health, um, we talk about SEC IgA, and then we also talked about, you talked about the differences between the mucosal layers between the small and the large intestines, because they're not the same, mm -hmm. right? So exactly. can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah. So uh, from an evolutionary perspective, it makes a lot of sense that we, in the small intestine, we only have a very thin mucus layer and it's not fixed. To it. So it's basically detached uh, from the epithelium. It is needed uh, to make a pH gradient and to retain host defense peptides and, and also digestive enzymes close to the apical border so that we can up, uh, take up the nutrients that we are ingesting. Uh, and then it also helps on moving the the shime so so the the food bolus that we're having throughout the intestines without disrupting the the intestinal epithelium too much mm -hmm. um the downside is that it's only a very thin layer so that means that if we have for instance you were referring to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth which is a part of ibs the downside there is that once you have this and you don't have a very sufficient uh mucus layer to protect then you again have closer proximity from the closest bacteria to the epithelium, which will uh, initiate an inflammatory reaction cascade. We know from a clinical perspective, we talk a lot about acromancia for building mucosal health and fiber for building mucosal health. And can you, what can we do in the small intestine where the fibers aren't being fermented and the acromancia isn't really being colonized? So how do you rebuild that mucosal layer in the small intestine once it's damaged by the SIBO? Extremely challenging and very, very good point. Uh, so you're absolutely right that we do talk about acromantia and other uh, mucose. It's basically mucose-degrading bacteria to mm -hmm. sort of reinforce mucosal health. And for most subjects, that is true. It's extremely beneficial. You can have specific disease indications where you don't 
because you have limited uh, capability of secreting new and relevant mucus. And then you wouldn't want to have too many mucus degrading bacteria there, otherwise they would normally be protected, but they could actually penetrate the mucus layer uh, and make sort of a corridor for opportunistic pathogens. Not that them by themselves will be it, but they can make a corridor. Uh, so it's just to balance the, the, the discussion a little bit because it is complicated in a real life situation. Coming back to the small intestine, what we can do to induce mucus there, fermentable fibers cannot be digested by the host microbes in the small intestine. They simply don't have the time and we don't have the right microbes there. But the short chain fatty acids that are produced by uh, bacterial uh, fermentation of these fibers, they can travel via the bloodstream to the small intestine. And then from the basal lateral side, affect uh, mucus secreting goblet cells in the small intestine as well. We also have incrocins, for instance, uh, GLP-2, so glucagon-like peptide 2, that is an intestinotrophic peptide. They can also stimulate mucus production. But the research here is still in its infancy, and, and we are doing both preclinical and involved in clinical trials try, where we're trying to sort of dissect this and see how can we manipulate it to the benefit of the host. And maybe we talk about, for a second, the whole points of these organs in the digestive tract, right? The small intestine is responsible for the absorption of nutrients, while mm -hmm. the large intestine is more about filtering water at that point. And again, the fermentable fibers and things like that. So um, maybe this is a good segue about you mentioning actually the importance of vitamin A metabolism. And perhaps this is how we start to rebuild that mucosal layer in the small intestine is by allowing the body to feed on nutrients that it needs and needs the absorption of um, from a very basic perspective. Where does this vitamin A metabolism happen and why Why specifically did you call this vitamin out in your paper? Yeah, so look, there are a lot of vitamins that, and they are all sort of important for, for host health. But vitamin A is particularly important for orchestrating the gastrointestinal, the immune system of the gastrointestinal tract. Vitamin A is lipid soluble, which means that it is taken up by, so you need to have uh, some fat in your diet when you also take the, the vitamins, otherwise you will not be able to, to absorb them. Um, so it's taken up in the small intestine, that's where it happens. Uh, and then it, it in, enhances the, the amount of regulatory T cells for once, also uh, affects the phenotype of dendritic cells, which again are the ones that are setting the stage of what kind of adaptive immune response that you will get. So for that reason, vitamin A is extremely important to have in, in adequate amounts. Are there any other nutrients that you found in your research that have to do with the gut microbiome that you would emphasize on apart from fiber, <laughs> vitamin A, uh, maybe the, the basics? In, in layman's terms, it's very often, should you go high, high sort of uh, high fat, low carbs, should you go high protein, what, how should you design your diet to make the most beneficial metabolism that you can come uh, by? What we find and, and generally believe is that it's, it's a bit boring answer, but, but you just need a balanced diet. You really need to balance it and it should be as less processed as possible so that we go as natural as possible. 
Yes. I love that you preach that because that's exactly what we do in our practice as well. It's like, people always ask me, they're like, oh my gosh, like the fish, we can't have fish anymore. We have to only eat beef because the fish have plastics. And I'm like, listen, guys, if you consume the most variety in your diet as possible, you will have the healthiest microbiome. You will have the healthiest body because our body, again, is able to overcome these small stressors when they happen. But when you chronically eat the same thing that might have the same whatever effect on you, that's when you start to develop some sort of aftermath or some sort of health uh, problem. So I'm completely with you there. I think variety is key. I think change is key based off the literature, even with the ketogenic diet, okay. the, the papers that are saying that it's beneficial, it's like, it's beneficial short term, and then we change it again. It's the variety. It's yeah. it's in, inducing some sort of a quote unquote stressor or change that forces our metabolism to work in a new way, and then we're able to go back. It's that metabolic flexibility that is so important to our health. Um, so I'm so glad that you touched upon that. You also did mention um, like the optimal diet in general, and one of the pieces of your paper was talking about protein and how you there's a difference between casein and plant protein. Mm -hmm. Could you explain that a bit? So casein is also used uh, the same as whey protein. So basically milk proteins that are used for bodybuilders and so on. Very high in branched chain amino acids. If you do have an active lifestyle, uh, no harm is done by taking casein supplements. Uh, it can actually be beneficial for you. It, it increases sort of the, the way that you can build muscles and so on. But, and it's also very pure pr protein. Uh, so, so the uh, nitrogen content is high. But if you have a sedentary lifestyle, I wouldn't take any protein supplements, and in particular not casein, because casein, as mentioned, they have a high level of branched chain amino acids, and then you use those as substrates for some of the more negative bacteria again, and then you'll have increased branched chain amino acid passes throughout the intestine, over the intestine, and that will go into the liver from the portal circulation, and will induce insulin secretion. Uh, we and others, uh, sorry, uh, induce insulin resistance. Uh, eventually potentially could lead to something like type 2 diabetes. Again, not if you do it once in a while, but if you sort of over-exaggerate it, that's what could happen. Uh, we and others have seen it both preclinically and in, in human subjects as well. So that's basically the thing with casein. The reason why we pointed out in this review is that casein is the most common protein source in, in preclinical mouse feed. So whenever you feed the mice, and which is also rats for that matter, but, but the mice are nevertheless the ones that are used the most in, in preclinical research. There's been a lot of focus on different uh, fat sources, but the protein in general in these diets is always casein. And that gives you a very sort of skewed response to what you're actually investigating. So we are looking more, we have been looking at different plant proteins, but what we are trying to do to make it more humanized would be to make a mixed protein source. Mm -hmm. So basically we look at what do humans eat and then that's what we use as sort of a backbone. You're making me excited here because I don't know how much you know about me, but I created a, a plant-based protein that elicits the same muscle building effects as whey. So essentially I took the amino acid profile of whey, but I made it out of a plant-based source. So one scoop of this plant-based protein will have the same essential amino acids, leucine content, um, but be plant-based. Uh, so you're speaking to the right audience here about why I really truly think this is the future of 
of health and of protein in general. Um, and I think that a lot, a lot of the future will be incorporating this plant-based optimized protein um, for those exact same reasons. Alrighty. So another thing that you touched upon was L-fucose and the importance of glycan fucosylation in the diet. Maybe touch on the audience about what L-fucose is and maybe where it's coming from in, in our diet. So uh, L-fucose is, is a, a, um, a um, again, it's, it's a substrate that we use to feed our microbes. To put it simplistic, it's, it's like uh, when we're feeding our microbes fibers, um, then when we use L-fucose, then we can have beneficial microbes, for instance, Acomentia, uh, that will then flourish in this environment. They use it as a substrate and they, they can then generate all the new uh, beneficial nutrients that we need from this. Uh, and that's basically one of the reasons why this could be beneficial. Mm -hmm. And I found L-fucose is found in seaweeds, mm -hmm. mushrooms, seeds. So dietary wise, this is where they have been found in um, our diet, which again, I think most of the time they basically say it's found in a variety of fruits and vegetables and things like that. No one needs to go and like start eating pounds of mushrooms after this call. Um, but it's just important, I, I think, for us to discuss that L-fucose is... Um, it's a sugar, it's a carbohydrate, right? Mm. And um, and it's used as a substrate by our microbes to, to enhance our immune system, to enhance, to feed them acromancia, et cetera. So I thought that was really interesting because I haven't heard too much talk about L-fucose. I've heard everyone talk about cranberry juice for, um, <laughs> yeah. for acromancia, but never yeah, yeah, yeah. in mushrooms and seaweed. Yeah. But I think for the for the cranberry story, just to touch a little bit on that, uh, it seemed that it would be the polyphenols that are um, present in the cranberries that are beneficial for potentially beneficial for acromantia growth rather than the sugars. So you think you could just supplement with like resveratrol pills and have the same effect for as acromantia? It might be a nervous rest, but that's definitely a that's a possibility. Yeah, polyphenols is a completely different uh, area, but. Uh, polyphenols are not just polyphenols and if you take cranberry it really depends on how you grow them because if you again if you industrialize them the issue is basically not that um, sometimes it is how you process it but in this particular situation it's that polyphenols is a defense mechanism for the plant they mm -hmm. use it when they have uh, frost or any other sort of environmental changes as a de-stressor and that's when you develop all the good polyphenols Whereas if you grow them in, in a greenhouse or sort of industrial scale, you don't develop the same kind of polyphenols and most likely you will not have the same benefits. So that's why you shouldn't, in my opinion, uh, if you're extremely sick and you have malnutrition for different reasons, you can take food supplements at larger scales. But otherwise, you have it all in your diet if you just go there. You are preaching to my choir right now. Everyone on Instagram knows that I do not recommend greens powders for gut health. I don't know how many times people tell me they're like, but like, I don't eat vegetables. I'm like, well, why are you going to this pill that we have no idea? Just like you talked about earlier, how that bio, that actual biochemical constituent of that dehydrated broccoli extract is going to be absorbed. If it even, if we even have enterocytes to 
to absorb it into our bloodstream, um, how that molecule is changed through basic and acidic conditions throughout the GI. We just don't even know if it's going to have a health benefit. And I always go back to like turmeric that we eat. Um, sure, we know that curcumin is the healthiest part of the, of the turmeric, but what if we had just dehydrated turmeric and consumed it? It's completely different than the curcumin extract that we now have extracted. And now we know that in order to actually absorb it, we need black pepper involved in it. Uh -huh. And so small things like this, like we barely know anything about greens powders at this point, which is why I always, always, always am a whole foods first approach. Um, and you mentioned a, a great other uh reason as to why that that could be and, and and just a very simple if we just go into the vegetables a very simplistic explanation is also that once you eat an entire vegetable you get all the minerals and some of these different amino acids that you have the, so the proteins are, are built by amino acids essentially uh, they need to be carried by by minerals so if you only eat it as a supplement then most often it will not be balanced in terms of, of, of the minerals, but nature has basically done the job for us. So I would say for all sort of healthy human beings that are capable of eating normally, they should just have a very balanced and, and uh, uh, diverse diet and they will be home safe. Mm -hmm. And you see so many people now they're hopping on the mineral trend. It's like now they're supplementing with greens and with minerals every single mm -hmm. day and with all of these things every single day. And there's some validity, I believe, to supplementing with minerals only for the sole purpose that most of our food at the grocery store does come from mass production. And at that scale of mass production, soil is getting depleted of its minerals. And mm -hmm. so I think it is beneficial for some people. Do I do it? No. Could I do it? Probably, but I'm fine right now, right? Um, I always am a firm believer that the less supplementation, the better, because just like a processed cookie or something you would find that's processed, supplements are just as processed in that in that manner. We don't yeah. know what kind of oxidation processes have occurred. We don't know what kind of end product there is. So if you do choose to supplement, please always rotate it, try other brands. Again, variety is key for anything, I think, in life, moderation. Um, but that brings me to one of the last things that you talked about, which was emulsifiers. Mm -hmm. How concerned do you think the general population has to be with emulsifiers that are now found in, um, I, I mean, where are you located right now? I'm, I'm located in Denmark, Europe, northern part okay. of Europe right now. But I've been living in, in North America for, for some years. So I, I do know there's a huge difference between how much you use emulsifiers in North America versus uh, in Europe. Yeah, and I'm not even sure that we're required to call them out, like nope. like di silicon dioxide and like mm -hmm. any sort of powder that you make. For example, greens powders, they actually mm -hmm. have to put in an emulsifier in order for the them not to like um, stick together. Yeah. But you don't have to necessarily call it out. So anyways, I'm wondering um, how concerned does the general population need to be about it? I, I don't like to concern people. Uh, so I don't think that that everyone should be scared and, and about all these different things that we have out there. But I think it's extremely important to be aware of the things and be aware of what they can do. Again, if you have a little bit of mule suffice here and there, 
no harm is done because you can uh, regenerate whatever you have sort of uh, messed up in the intestines. But the problem is when you overdo it and when you put it in everything. And also here in Europe, we also have it in, in, in jam and different kind of things. The problem is that you can look at the texture. If you look at uh, peanut butter, for instance, when you have the separation between the oily phase and the peanut butter by itself, that's the natural part. To me, it tastes delicious, uh, but some people like the more smooth version. But you put in a chemical that will smoothen up this uh, mixture and, and uh, homogenize the different phases. The same happens in the gut, which means that you disrupt the uh, intestinal mucus layer that you so heavily rely on, according to what we talked about the first few minutes. So I would say decrease the amount as much as you can, because one thing is that you disrupt the mucus layer that's evident proved it has been shown in mice and in humans but the next thing is that it directly affects the microbes so it, that we have in our gut in a detrimental way so it's important to realize that all the cells that we have harbors you know a ton of different genes that they don't need they don't express but microbes has an advantage that they are very sort of vers vers versatile and uh, almost promiscuous so they can adapt instantly they can get genes from from uh, the neighboring cells and so on by, by uh, horizontal uh, gene transfer so they change behavior depending on what kind of environment they're in and if they're exposed to emulsifiers or other stressors they become more stressed and they overexpress some of the genes that are called pro-inflammatory so they overactivate the immune system and you can basically see it in an in vitro gut system where you have these microbes expose them to emulsifiers or not and then they increase the pro-inflammatory potential when you expose them to repulsive cell lines where you can measure all these things in the lab um, so for that reason it's not that i'm not eating anything with emulsifiers but i really try to avoid it and just have the natural again it's uh, nature's pretty good as it is, uh, sometimes we have to change it for whatever reason uh, to, to preserve uh, things so increase shelf life and so on. But we should try to diminish the use of, of emulsifiers and other additives for that matter. Is there anything else that you, I feel like every practitioner or every scientist has their little thing that they focus on. Like you ask a cardiologist what they focus on. They're like, I don't eat anything with saturated fat like something like that. So what is your kind of uh, dietary perspective or shift that you've made as you continue learning more and more in the literature? So um, I do eat more vegetables and drink less alcohol than I did before, um, simply to preserve my, my gut health. I, I still enjoy alcohol. I love wine and, and champagne and, and beers especially. But I do it on only in the weekends, not in the weekdays, because very often, I, I don't know, but here in, in our, where I'm living, it's very normal to have a glass of wine or two uh, at night. And, and, and it, it tastes delicious again, but, but it's, it's not good for your health. And there's a lot of calories in it next to that. And when you go above a certain age, as, as I'm approaching, then uh, you tend to increase uh, abdominal fat when you have too much of that. So, so that's what I try to do and then increase the amount of, of vegetables so that I get some fibers and uh, a little bit of dirt actually because I, I think it's important that we continuously expose our immune system to all the different things um, so of course I want my carrots to be somewhat clean but I'm not hysterical I don't mind if there's a little bit of dirt on it because it will only suit as long as I'm good I'm healthy then it will only stimulate a, a or help on the homeostasis that we have in the gut um, 
So that's that's uh, that's for the most part what I would see, uh, what I would say, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so, so much, Dr. Jensen. This was so valuable, so important. And thank you so much from the bottom of our hearts for coming on and chatting with us. Thank you for having me. It was uh, very interesting. All righty. Bye, guys. Thanks. Bye.